So it is time for our kids' corner up here. I got a kind of special thing I wanted to try out today. So, oh, yes, for the kids at heart, too, right? So, but, uh, so now you've probably seen this before, right? Maybe, maybe not this one, but okay. So I got a question about rules again. Are rules good, bad, fun? What do you think? Yeah, they're good generally, right? But if they're so good, how come we struggle to follow them so much? Hmm, right? So I bought, brought this game in to kind of make an illustration. I want to talk to the big people today about the rules of life, okay? And, you know, maybe if you've seen this game before, actually, it's got a really fun spinner. You want to try that real quick? <laughs> so, but, oh, there you go. Oh, still only a one now, right? <laughs> but if you've ever seen this, you know, basically the idea behind the game is to go around the board here and the different forks in the board kind of represent different decisions that you might make during life, right? The thing is, the game of life probably isn't a real accurate representation of how life really goes. First of all, I really don't think you're going to find anybody that gives you 10,000 bucks to take care of their cats. <laughs> At least that hasn't happened in my life, right? Um, but the other thing is that, you know, there are very few real forks in the road, right? And these forks represent decisions, and in the game they represent big decisions about, like, going to college or having kids or things like that. But, you know, in reality, there are lots of little decisions that we got to make every day that are probably just as important as some of those big decisions, right? So... But, you know, embedded in the rules of the game is actually how you win the game, right? So, like, for example, you know, how do we know who wins a baseball game or a football game? You know, well, because the rules tell us how points are given, right? You know, and do you know, by the way, what is the goal of the game of life? Yeah, the, game, the goal in this game is to accumulate the most money, right? Does that sound like a real good goal for life? Now, you know what? I think there are a lot of goals that are far more important than that goal. And in fact, they're actually kind of contrary to that goal. If the goal is to love other people, probably if you're trying to accumulate the most money, you're not probably giving very much, are you? Right? But so, what do you think? Um, those are the rules of the game and how to win the game. Are there real rules to the real, to real life? What about the Ten Commandments? Mm, right? Okay, but what is winning at real life? What do you think? Is it just obeying all the commandments? I mean, that would probably be a good start because that would help you on your way to loving other people, right? 
What do you think? To get to heaven, okay. But is that really something that we need to work hard at or is that something that kind of comes with relationship with God? Yeah, that's in relationship with God. So I think kind of in there is kind of where our real goal should be. You know, um, we win when we depend on, live in relationship with God. This is kind of what I want to talk with the big people about today. What do you think? Should I have at it with them? All right. Thank you for participating in my game of life here. So. Would you like to take a turn at the spinner here, Jeff? Or <laughs> I forgot to offer the other kids at heart here with me. So. so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As, a, as many of you know, if you've heard any of my childhood stories, <laughs> you know that when it comes to the rules, I was often on the other side of those. Um, and you know, if you're a parent, you, you can... You've probably met the kid that when they break the rules, you can just give them the look, and that works. Well, that wasn't me. I was the kid that needed the paddle. <laughs> so, um, and I found my way to it quite a few times. I mean, actually remember weighing whether or not getting caught breaking the rules might be worth it, you know? And if it wasn't, what more I could do to make it worth it even. Um, this idea, by the way, was totally alien to my wife, which I can hardly believe because I thought everybody looked at it kind of that way when I was younger. Um, so really, my goal was just having fun, you know, and at the core... Sin promises fun. Sin is fun. If it's not, you're probably doing it wrong, you know. But sin is fun until it isn't fun. And when it isn't, it really isn't. And uh, at the same time, the cost of sin is the soul of man. Jesus set us free from sin through his gospel. We've been set free to stay free, not to fall back into sin, into self-worship, that is, because that really is the root of sin. Last week, we spoke about soul, and I said that soul is kind of that eternal part of you, the part that lives on, the part that's really me. That's my soul, the essence of who I am, who you are. And it's your soul that's being transformed from glory to glory, right? Don't be discouraged when you examine your soul, when you examine yourself and you, you see that, you know, I've failed. I fail again and again. In the flesh, I do. But stay focused because you are being transformed into his image. These deficits that we see 
They usually remind us that we're lawbreakers. But really, that's an accuser speaking into your, your soul. That's the devil talking to you. They should really remind you of your need for grace and your need for Jesus. You see, the Bible says, actually, that our souls cry out to God. Well, why are they crying out? <coughs> Excuse me. They're crying out because they lack meaning. And without meaning, we can hardly face tomorrow. But with meaning, we can overcome the insurmountable, endure the unendurable. How many people survived Hitler's concentration camp? I was reading a story this week on Ernest Shackleton. If you don't know who he is, he was an Antarctic explorer a hundred years ago who got trapped in sea ice, his ship got destroyed, and he and his crew spent two and a half years trying to survive on Antarctica, eventually taking one of the lifeboats 800 miles across open ocean to reach civilization and a rescue. All of them survived, and they survived because they shackled in made it his life's meaning that his crew would survive the ordeal. But that meaning also needs to be true. We can't convince ourselves to live for something that we know is a lie. Even if we doubt it, it fails as a real meaning. So meaning isn't meaning if it isn't truth. So I have a quick test. I always put the kids on the spot here. Now it's your turn right? Why did Jesus come to earth? What do you think? Anybody want to volunteer this one? Why did he come? To save us. That's just so profound when you think about it, that we need saving. But that's not why Jesus said he came. Now, I'm talking specifically here about Jesus on trial before Pilate. Why did Jesus say that he came? So he came, he said, and this is the quote from John 18:37. For this reason I was born. For this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Truth is it a pretty important thing, don't you think? I mean, we can't live a life, we can't live really for something that we know is a lie. And this is the damage that we do to our soul when we pursue sin. Now, our culture tells us that, <clears throat> excuse me again, I'm having such trouble this morning with this. Our culture tells us that meaning is found in the self. It's found in self-actualization. It's in discovering yourself. Our culture is turning us back toward the God of self, that is the idol of self, that is a lie, and that is death, according to Jesus. No wonder our souls cry out. Only God gives us true meaning, and it's found in love. It's found when we get in that 
kind of river of God, as the analogy last week, taking in the love of God and passing it along to a world in need. In serving others in righteousness and leaving the outcomes up to God. Casting our anxieties on on the Lord because he cares for us. And this cannot be said enough. The Lord loves you. The Lord sent his son to testify to the truth for you. And ultimately, take the penalty and save us. But now I want to turn and take another look on sin. When I sin, I try to get what I want. How can my soul find rest if I'm trying to work out the outcome? Doing what we know to be wrong distances us from God, but that's not the worst of it. This oppositeness to humility further distances us from God. And then, sin's dependence on self pulls us away even further from dependence on God. We exalt our own will, our own spirit, our own heart over God's will. And this inflicts wounds on the soul as it cuts it off from the flow of love, that river coming in from God. 1 Peter 2.12 says it like this, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. How do they wage war against the soul? By enticing us to uproot our dependency on God and place it back in our own hands. At the root of all of this, of course, is the pride that the Bible speaks against. The hubris to believe that I'm big enough to take my own life in my own hands and that I should get what I want. But... This attitude is exactly the opposite of what it should be. Why should I get what I want? For what reason should I even think that I will? I'm not in charge of the universe. But isn't this what our culture tells us? We live in a free country. If you're not happy, isn't it your own fault? Aren't you really in charge of the ultimate outcomes in your life? Happiness and... Well, so... I want to look at that a little bit. You know, transformation is a great outcome to pursue. And it's not at all sinful to do that. It's not sinful to pursue loving your neighbor. But there are plenty of areas that we are Lord in. And, you know, it, it's not, and I want to be clear here, it's not sinful to Try and make a better life for yourself. Do your best running your business. Attend college, get a better education. None of that is sinful per se. But leave the outcomes to God. Never lose sight of your dependence on God. Sin, that is through desire and pride, alienates the life in us from the life that is life. That is God. This leaves the soul in turmoil, struggling to even muster enough energy to get through tomorrow. 
Consciously choosing evil, arrogantly wrongdoing, is kind of the deepest wound people can inflict on their own souls. The law of God is, in a sense, a great gift of grace conveyed to the human race. It shows us that we are sinners, so it pushes us toward grace, toward the recognition that we need Jesus. Romans 5.20 says that the law came to increase the trespass. Now wait, what? Hang with me here on this a second. The law came to increase the trespass. What does that mean? It means that it came to make it worse that we break the law in a way. And I'm envisioning my mom standing there telling me, don't you do it because I'm telling you, right? That is increasing the the trespass, okay? Um, You know, in other words, you know you're a sinner. There's no question. I fall into this category. So does everyone else. But there's much more to the law than just a list of rules. You see, the inadequacy of the human effort is implied from the very beginning. It provides a picture of reality, how things really are between God and his creation. And it offers an essential meeting place between God and man. It enables the human being to know the heart of God. It enables the sincere heart to be instructed and enabled to walk in the ways of God. It enables covenant worship and relationship even. It makes possible to know wherein our true well-being lies. To know and to internalize the law then converts and restores the soul. The law offers spiritual power in its own right. It is a living power being able to keep being capable of distinguishing the soul from the spirit of man and dealing with them appropriately according to Hebrews 12, 4.12. Yet there's no place in the Bible that says that what the law does in the heart is an accomplishment a human accomplishment. Even in the Old Testament, all the benefits ascribed to the law go to the law itself or to the lawgiver. This is the Pharisaical mistake to believe that by following the law, I have somehow arrived. The law is intended for grace. It's intended to be grace. The Pharisees turned it into an instrument of oppression. And there's a fine line. Know and love the law. Realize that we can't even change the law. Can't alter it to fit me. But don't use the law as a club to club and beat on those struggling with the law. We tend not to think of the law as grace. We see it as constraining and constricting not enabling and clarifying and guiding us to our own good. The law is not our oppressor. Sin is the oppressor. The law is there to influence how you live so that you can live life to the fullest. The rules of the ball game are good rules. Even if I lose the game, the rules enable me to enjoy the game. Well, I guess enjoy it, depending on how much I hate losing, perhaps, but... 
you know, in, in theory, right? Sin is the curveball that causes me to swing and miss every time. Bringing it all together, law and grace go together. What the law could not do, namely secure human conformity to itself by its own power, it couldn't do that because of the weakness of human ability, God brought about by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemning sin in the flesh. In other words, God showed up for the imposter sin on its own turf. God showed up in the flesh where sin dwells. In order that the law, what the law requires, might be fulfilled in us, You do not walk in terms of the flesh, but in terms of the spirit. As our spirits are transformed, we walk in the spirit of the law. And as we walk more and more in the spirit of the law, the letter of the law will be fulfilled. Amen.